welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand under the company of Horns of Odin. Before we start today's episode, I do have to do the plugs as always. And it is for Patreon. That is the best way to support us. It's the way we keep the lights on. It's the way we keep the show going. And if you can, it's just £3 a month. Works out about 10p a day. And you can find that over at Patreon forward slash Nordic Mythology Podcast. You get a bonus episode every single week. So we do the, the main show with our guest. And then we do a Q&A after. Now you can submit your questions in real time by watching the show or ahead of time when we announce the guests. And these aren't something that you have to be live to watch. They get posted on the Patreon. You can watch them after the fact. You also get ad-free episodes, early access. Um, like I said, you get to watch the episodes live. You get access to our Discord server as well. There's a lovely little community of people over there. And then the next tier up from that, you get the story time with Jonas Lorenzen, where we've just started reading through Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, uh, which is a lot of fun. We have a beer or two and just have a laugh. If you've listened to the episodes with Jonas before, anybody who has will realize that, you know, we just, we turn into giddy little schoolboys and just have a, have a good time, which is a lot of fun. And if you can't financially support just a five-star rating and a positive review, wherever you get the podcast always helps just find a new audience. But let's get into today's show. Um, Liam Waters is the guest and I will, I said to you before, I didn't even know when I looked at this topic or the little notes that I got, I didn't understand them. And then I Googled the words in the topic and didn't understand those either, which in turn made me super excited for the episode because it just meant that I was going to learn something completely new that I don't know. So Liam, can you just let people know who you are, uh, maybe what you do, and then we can explain further the things that I didn't understand. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Liam Waters. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, and I'm currently a visiting researcher at the Arne Magnuson Institute for Icelandic Studies in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, and my research, my dissertation uh, project is all about uh, mythological space and the the beings and the things that inhabit uh, mythological space. So that's the that's the quick elevator pitch. <laughs> you missed out the the trigger word. I'm going to call it, which was tertiary. Um, yes, tertiary. <laughs> this is what I've never come across in my. I think I'm 34. I think I'm 34 now. I forget. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm 34. So, but this is something I've not come across in my 34 years. Mm. Uh, is the word tertiary. Uh, so I read mythological space as a tertiary world. And then I Googled yeah. tertiary. And let me just pull this up for, for anybody who's who's listening. Uh, and it said, relating to or denoting the first period of a Cenozioc era between <laughs> Cretaceous and Quaternary people, uh, quart uh, Quaternary periods and compromising of Paleogene and Neogene subperiods. That's the Google that I got, and I was and just reading that alone, I was like, "Okay, what?" Yeah, so that has absolutely nothing to do with the tertiary that I'm talking about. Okay, um, so, yeah, exactly. Okay. That makes me so, feel automatically at ease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so tertiary in the context in which I use it, it's it's really easy. It just means the third in a sequence of things, right? So we say first, second, tertiary, right? First, second, third. Oh, okay. It's sort of just a fancy way of of denoting something in in 
the third position of an order or level. Oh, okay, it does say that on here as well. That's that's the other because it gives you like a couple of meanings for the word. It says mm-hmm. the third in order or level. Yeah, I wish I'd just read that one first. Wouldn't have embarrassed <laughs> myself trying to pronounce periods that I have no idea how to say. No, honestly, I was I was here for the entertainment value. I don't know that I would be able to pronounce half of them myself. So, you know, that, that's what had me when I was reading. I was like, oh, okay, uh, <laughs> I I've been doing this for like a hundred and ninety something episodes now, and I've, there's a lot of words here that I feel I should have at some point heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's fair enough. Um, yeah. So the way that I use uh, tertiary, or the the reason why. Um, I talk about mythological space as a, as a tertiary world um, is just a sort of conceptual frame uh, for discussing space and its its position within a conversation. So that that all sounds very abstract, but in very simpleized, you know, in very simple terms, um, we can think about. Uh, when we think about mythological space or imaginary space, we can think about it in terms of three different levels. Um, So we have a primary world, a secondary world, and a tertiary world. And the primary... Sorry sorry to jump in so early. When we say mythological space, what do we mean? What do we mean by that? Would that just be a term for like, just a mythological idea or Mm. how, how would you... I just want to make sure we're all kind of on the same page. Yeah. Like, no, it's fair enough. So um, I guess you could define it as any space within mythological narratives where uh, supernatural uh, beings are are dwelling or acting. Um, it's sort of a realm of, of imagination. Um, John Carey, who is a, a Celticist, I think he's at Cork. Um, he basically defines that uh this sort of other world as uh any place inhabited by supernatural beings or itself exhibiting supernatural characteristics right so mm-hmm. we can think about asgard or jotunheim or hell and you know all of these various you know the the nine worlds would be a would be a good uh way of thinking about about mythological space i suppose okay okay um so when we go into them, the third, what mm-hmm. what does that entail? When yeah, we said- well, so I think it's helpful to to sort of put it in context to the other two worlds, right? So the primary world, right, if we're talking about these sequ- series of worlds, right, would be the world that you and I inhabit, right? Okay. You and I talking, speaking here over Zoom, right? We're in the primary world, the world of reality, right? But then this really interesting thing starts happening when you when you consider imaginary spaces, whether they're mythological or, you know, uh, if you're talking about modern fantasy literature. Right. Um, If you're talking about any type of literature, you're inherently talking about sort of an imaginary world Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist. Right. So if one was to say think about a book like uh the chronicles of narnia right the lion the witch and the wardrobe um you've got a good example of a division between a tertiary world and a and a um secondary world there right so we in the primary world are are reading the book we're reading about a secondary world right the pevensey children um you know going away from london during the blitz um that's an imaginary secondary world it's a world of fiction but ultimately based on our world right it's a representation of the primary real world 
But the Pevensey kids don't stay there, right? They go into Narnia, which is yet another world within this, this frame, right? And Narnia is a tertiary world, right? does something a little different. It's not an imaginary world that's based on or trying to reflect our primary world. It's its own completely new imaginary thing with its own internal logic and you know, uh, fantasy, the, the, the physics of Narnia, um, operate differently. The logic of Narnia operates differently. Right. So it's the distinction between these worlds are basically, we've got reality, we've got a sort of symbolized version of reality. And then we have this fantastic world that isn't really, uh, attempting to mimic the primary world. It is completely distinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> I, I think so. I'm there. I'm okay. Following. I'm all I'm, right. I'm doing better than I thought at this point. I, yeah. I promise yeah. it sounds a lot more intimidating than it actually is. <laughs> okay. So, so how do we put Nordic mythology into this tertiary world or how do we, we look at it? Sure. So I guess a good place to, to begin in discussing it is, um, with with Snorri and Snorri's representation of uh, Norse mythological space. So uh, in Snorri's prose Edda, uh, he had the first section of of his treatise on mythology, as it were, um, is centered on this figure named Gilfi. Right, the first section of his book is called Gilfigeting, or the the delusion, the deceiving of Gilfi. Gilfi is this king who goes off to try to find where the gods live. He's trying to to get more information about the the heathen gods. And in going off and trying to find this uh, information, he stumbles into what is essentially a a tertiary world. He stumbles into mythological space. Um, And in the context of Snorri's explanation uh, of all of this mythological material, Snorri sort of explains away, you know, as a good medieval Christian, he sort of explains away some of the uh, heathen aspects by saying, this was all a delusion. It was all a dream. Gilfi was being tricked by the gods into thinking that the things he was seeing in mythological space were real. Um, Mm. But when Gilfi gets there and he's being entertained by by the gods, really, it's Odin who he's talking to. He's seeing all of these fantastic things around him. Right. He he walks into what is probably Valhalla, which is described as as having gold shields adorning the uh, the rafters of the of the hall. Um, there are sort of people around the hall who are doing fantastic things like crazy juggling and acrobatic uh, things within the hall. And he sees this sort of bizarre figure at the end of the hall um, who goes by uh, three different names, high, just as high, and and third, and that figure just happens to be Odin. But all of mm-hmm. these fantastic details go into describing and sort of fleshing out um, this this tertiary world, this mythological space. Mm-hmm. Uh, how accurate do you think Snorri is when it comes? Because I've always wondered this when it comes to uh-huh. this. I guess this tertiary world, this 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 world that we kind of see today as this mythological space that we all, I guess, everybody listening to this, um, whatever level you are at, 
along your journey of learning, we will all have a different image, I guess, of this mythological world. Uh, mine's certainly different from when I first started. I I probably would have been very entry of like, you have all the the warriors fighting and and it very kind of um eh, probably quite broy I guess would be mm. the way to put it. And now I think it would be different if I if I looked at it. But yeah, I guess yeah. How how much do you think we really know about what they would have thought of this mythical world at the yeah, time? Well, I guess is kind of like what 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 has been portrayed in modern media, maybe. Well, I mean, I, I, there are sort of several questions within that, but you, you've asked probably one of the most like incendiary questions among uh, old narcissists, which is how much did Snorri actually get right? How much well, yeah. of, of Snorri is actually reflective of some pre-Christian tradition or pre-Christian understanding of of this space and the narratives concerned with the gods? Um I think there are tons of different opinions, even among the the very um, learned among our field. Um, I'm personally of the opinion that Snorri's given it his his best go, right? Um, I don't personally, as a scholar, I don't think Snorri gets everything right. I think there there are places where he 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 stumbles or inserts his own sort of explanations of things he he might not have context for. Um, but you know, by and large, his Snorri's goal in writing the Prose Edda is to preserve explanations for uh, poetic devices, right? He really wants to make sure that Scandinavian poets are able to continue to compose using, using these um, special poetic terms we call kennings, right? Mm -hmm. Which usually have some sort of mythological reference. They're sort of like um, poetic riddles, yeah. right? So... I'm sure you've discussed this at other times in the in the podcast, but um, you know, if you want to say, uh, I don't know, you want to talk about um, an eagle, you might say the form in which uh, Odin carried the mead, right? And you would have to know the story of Odin mm -hmm. stealing the mead of poetry to be able to understand that a poet is referring to yeah. an eagle mm -hmm. right and so snorri has sort of an imperative in that way to make sure that his explanations are, are grounded in in reality otherwise any poet attempting to to understand poetry composed within this pre-christian era um they're gonna have a pretty hard time making heads or tails of mm -hmm. what's going on in in these poetic forms so uh that's a very long-winded winded explanation um that basically just says i think i think snorri's trying as, as much as he can yeah um in popular culture I, I think there are you know varying success to uh to how i guess accurate um the depictions of mythological space are but you know i i think in as with so many things there's a lot of um artistic license that that people can take um not everybody's interpretation of what valhalla say looks like is going to be you know consistent about uh, across the board and you know that's all right to to a certain extent you know there was probably substantial variation during the pre-christian period of what people understood these things to to look like 
Mm-hmm. Um, so variation is sort of, you know, part and parcel of the game. Yeah. I mean, are there, are there things that we can almost with some degree of certainty, I, I you know, I've been doing this long enough now to know that there's mm-hmm. pretty much nothing that can be done with a hundred percent degree of certainty. Uh-huh. But are there things that we can that we find in Snorri in other sagas and other places that we can go, okay, well, this is a general idea of what this mythological space would look like. Yeah, well, I mean, again, these things are sort of are sort of nebulous, but you know, there's there's consistency across a lot of the sources that we have um, that seem to to you know indicate that certain details um, are significant in describing particular places, right? Um, I describe uh, Valhalla, right, the hall where the the slain dead go, um, as being described with golden shields adorning its uh, roof and, and rafters and the details we get of you know, fallen warriors being within Valhalla, that seems relatively um, consistent. But, you know, not all of these things are... Mythological space isn't necessarily as, as literal uh, as we would as we would want it to be. I think, especially in the modern era, where we're so accustomed to being able to pull up something like Google Maps on our phone and be able to okay, yeah. to orient ourselves, um, doing that with mythological spaces is pretty difficult. Um, one because those kind of maps don't don't exist and. You know, uh, the technology um, that would have been required to do that kind of map making map making um, was was not a part of the predominantly oral culture mm-hmm. of pre-Christian Scandinavia. So, you know, you get uh, you get differences of of details depending on on sources as regards, you know, like where the giants live. Sometimes they're nebulously out in the east somewhere. Um, sometimes they're they're in the north. Um, you know, sometimes they're they're in the south, and they seem to change depending on where a particular narrative needs them to be. Um, but what does seem to be consistent is that they're always off somewhere in the distance, or they're off in some direction that we we view as perhaps dangerous or or uncharted. Right. Mm-hmm. So. We get plenty of narratives of um, you know, saga heroes going off into into the east, into Russia and other places, and encountering fantastic beings like dragons and and giants and that kind of thing. Um, mm. Just because you know it's not a terribly well understood uh, area, right? If you're living in mainland Scandinavia, you've got this big nebulous chunk of land off to the east that no one really understands, and that it pretty hard to navigate so cool that's where you're gonna pop all your fantastic um you know your fantastic monsters and things like that and i think there's a reason why um you know the east can to to a certain extent be a type of tertiary world that that one uh enters into it can kind of function in this way because it is kind of unknown and off in this in this distance and operates under a, a different kind of logic um, than the rest of the world does. Did you think that these worlds exist, these mythical mythological worlds existed kind of in our world? I know when I've spoken with Matthias about it on, on previous episodes, mm-hmm. how 
you see when you Google the nine worlds, um, you automatically get this image of these worlds almost on top of each other and some at mm. the side. I don't know who the fuck's come up with them, but that's you, everybody's probably seen that. It's like yeah. you have like maybe like three on top of each other and then the others almost um, orbiting around them, I guess. Whereas mm-hmm. I know in the past when I've spoken with Mateus and other guests, it feels like it's much more of a flat plane in how you've just described with, you know, looking over to the east and you would put maybe Jotunheim over there because we don't know so much about it. And I guess if there is a volcano that that erupts, then that could be the, the fireland, I guess. Uh, on that kind of like... So, do you think they, they these mythical mythological worlds would just exist amongst the real world rather than separate? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, to what extent these these things, you know, these worlds overlap is is perhaps a tricky thing to to you know parse out or, or to try to you know establish. A, a universal rule of how everyone would have understood um, their relation to where the worlds were. Um, that's pretty tricky. Um, I can we we can point to sources like um, there's a saga called uh, the saga of King uh, Heidrich the Wise, right? At least translated into to English, and in in that. Um, saga there is a character um Hervor, who goes to awaken her her dead father um and, and receive a magical sword from him and it's a very famous scene in in uh old norse legendary material this waking of of angantir this this dead father um and when this awakening happen happens the island he's on bursts into flames and you know the dead walk uh, walk around the island and it's very scary and all very kind of like halloween vibes um and the main character hedvor says um verbatim she says i i believe i am between worlds right now i'm between the world of the living and the dead is perhaps what she means so um these these overlaps or these boundaries do seem to exist one can cross from you know the real world into this imaginary uh imaginary space or you know fantastic space i should say um it just depends on where one finds the the entry point i suppose Mm -hmm. um we have plenty of of examples in fantastic literature um or i guess i should say uh legendary saga material of people crossing boundaries and borders in order to enter into this fantastic other world. Um, but to what extent uh, medieval people understood, oh, well, you know, Valhalla is just down the road that way and take a left and, you know, it's it's over there and that's how you, how you get there. Um, that's probably not how they understood these things. Um, there were probably there was probably more of a, a nebulous understanding of um, this orientation, right? And what mattered more was sort of the the, I guess, thematic significance of what these these worlds represented and what gaining access to them would potentially mean. Do we have stories of you know mere mortals? 
getting access to these otherworldly realms whilst alive, I guess. And yeah. and coming back. So, you know, did I, I went on a trip to, to Asgard and then came back. Yeah. So there are two really good examples, perhaps, of that. Um, so one is this legendary saga called uh, the, I guess you would say, the the tale of Thorstein uh, Mansion Might is is the name of the of the story, and it's about this protagonist Thorstein who um, he witnesses a young boy going on uh, what's described as a witch ride. Um, and he, he enters into the underworld, into the realm where the giants are um, through some sort of barrow mound and there's a river involved, all of these sort of magical boundaries. And Thorstein follows after him and enters into this fantastic world where he does a bunch of sort of fantastic things and messes with the giants and is able to, to uh, have adventures and gain some, some fantastic uh, knowledge and attributes and then goes home and becomes very favored at court. Um, the same thing is true. There's another uh, legendary saga called the saga of Eric the Far-Traveled. Um, starts off so with literal. him going. The so literal yes. sometimes. Oh yeah, always. Yeah, these epithets. Um, and he basically goes off into the East and he, he uh, encounters dragons and monsters and things like that and as he gets further and further east he ends up um stumbling into paradise into the into the afterlife almost this sort of um uh heaven on earth type place i suppose you could you could say and he he's able to enter this by passing through the mouth of a dragon so all of the details of how one gets there are are very sort of fantastic and certainly not literal um but after having this vision of the other world, he goes back home, uh, goes, I think he goes back to Norway, um, and becomes very successful in the, in the rest of his career. So certainly there are stories, um, from this period of, of people going and doing that. Um, and guilt beginning in, in the attic material is, you know, also an example of that we've already kind of talked about. Both those stories feel almost like the example you gave the, the line, which the wardrobe of like, a. Mm-hmm. And in between works, it seems like they 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 stay on on our world. They stay in our realm, but they have to go through some mythical steps to get to the other world, like what going through the dragon or through the different places. Yeah. But but it seems very kind of linear, as though they don't. I guess if you say to probably any Christian on Earth, if you how do you get to heaven? You probably have to yeah. die. But you kind of leave this this you leave this the earth you you kind of spirit would typically ascend to another another realm it would go kind of elsewhere from here rather yeah. than this feels like they're just kind of not not just but almost as if it's the exploration of a new land by somebody and when they come back they say i've just found this amazing place and they don't really know how to describe it and i guess when you're living in a time that doesn't understand you know like you said before we don't have google maps mm-hmm. uh, like today we understand the world unless you believe in flat earth and you just <laughs> your head in the sand like most people believe that you know know that the earth is round and we know pretty much everywhere other than in the sea we know all the land masses we know what they look like we can look at them on street view for the most part. But I guess when you're in a time where you don't know this, 
and you just travel out. Cause I, you know, if you could imagine if the first Scandinavian to travel to as far as Tunisia or into that kind of climate, that eco eco climate must be, oh, it must be otherworldly to be mm. there, to come from Norway, Denmark, and then come to this desert almost. Yeah, sure. Well, so, you know, to a certain extent, I don't even, I don't necessarily think that one has to be um, quite as literal as that either, you know, that that somehow these these stories are reflective of, of actual uh, journeys necessarily. But, you know, as with almost all fantastic literature, whether it's in the medieval period or whether you're talking about, you know, like, reading Lord of the Rings or the next Brian Sanderson novel or whatever it is, right? Like fantastic space is always this ideologically constructed. Um, it's an ideologically constructed world, right? It, it, it isn't real. And because it isn't real and because there's sort of a distance between our lived reality and the imaginative space that it represents, um, people are able to, to project and sort of work through um, various different social ills, perhaps that um, that exist at their time, or they're able to sort of project the desires of the society that they live at that time into this into this world. So, you know, imaginary worlds are always con- ideologically constructed, based predominantly, I would say, on the the sort of anxieties or desires of the the, the people that produced them. Mm-hmm. So, if one looks at the details of you know the the Norse afterlife, right? Valhalla and Asgard. You know what 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 does that look like? What are the details that go into constructing that space? And you know when one starts parsing these things out, it, it's very quickly very martial, right? The, the best afterlife is where all the strong warriors go. It's decked out with gold, so there's this idea of you know wealth and martial ability and you know the afterlife is you know one big party where everybody is is fighting and killing each other and then being resurrected at the at the end of the day and you you do it all over again right and feast and fight until the until ragnarok so what does it tell us about the society that that believed the afterlife looked like this you know that constructed this imaginary space about the things that they valued or the things that they feared right and one can do that with with i think all aspects of of imagined space right mm-hmm. um you know valhalla is only one example but one could just as easily point to the to the giants and say you know well what does giant land look like and what are the re- why are the re- what are the reasons why it looks this way mm-hmm. so i i i would say i'm obsessed with but i fascinated with trying to find like the origin of things mm-hmm. i find that very yeah well fascinating and with things like this i always wonder whether they at their origin point it is that somebody's just traveled somewhere rather than it just being a purely fictional mm. just just a because i most works of fiction probably come from some seed of reality and then from there it's kind of been built upon and these things added in like game of thrones for example it's clearly mm. just medieval england with some dragons thrown in sure. um 
so it feels like you know you have these these bits of reality and then from that you build this this world and add these fictional elements into it so i i find that interesting as to whether we can kind of find those points or if it is you know even before the vikings whether it was somebody that discovered a land came back described it and then through word of mouth through storytelling this then becomes a game of telephone where it becomes this fictional larger than life thing that then gets put into the mythology do we know where any of the like any of the origin points for the world or anything like that well i I think you've nailed it right on the head which is you know imagined space has to be informed by lived experience right like in order for us as consumers of these narratives um to be able to orient ourselves within imagined space to be able to to make heads or tails of it right like the author, the creator, um, is is naturally going to pull on their lived experience or or you know the elements of the real world that go into creating it. Right. This is something that um, Tolkien uh, wrote about actually um, as part of his sort of treatise on on fairy stories and, and modern fantasy, which is you know there you, the you know the mythological space, the fantastic space is always going to be. Um, a reflection of the society that that produced it. So, I mean, to to your point about like, is the origin of of these stories about going to giant land or you know uh, finding all these fantastic things out in the east? Is that reflective of you know the lived experience of an individual who went east, saw some you know crazy stuff, went home, told people about it, and had the details embellished? Maybe, but. You know, as with most things, I, I don't think it even has to be that that complicated. Um, if you have a character who goes into a fantastic or strange place, then the things that one is going to consider strange, the details that are going to go into um, generating that that strangeness or that fantasy are going to be rooted in you know, the social perceptions of, of what you and people around you view as being strange or unusual, right? Mm-hmm. So in later mythological narratives, right, you get details of people going off into the East and finding, you know, uh, men with the heads of dogs and um, giants who have faces on their stomachs and, you know, all of these crazy outlandish um, you know, outlandish beings and, and, and details. And one has to question, you know, is this reflective of something they were actually being when they went and traveled? Or is there some underlying reason why these are the specific details um, that have been chosen to to generate this this sense of strangeness within the story? Do we see, I guess, then any examples of, I guess, information being passed down through the mythology? You know, like mm. things that need to be told, so you don't eat this certain thing. But it's put, I guess, it's put in there in a mythical setting. But it, people learn not to do certain actions because it's going to lead to either like illness or harm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're talking about the basis of. of- folklore right there i mean that's the that's the heart of it um yeah there's there's tons of 
prohibition and taboo that that exists within these types of narratives. Um, I used to tell my students all the time, I had this anecdote um, when I was teaching back at Berkeley. Um, and it's, it's a good example, I suppose, of how narrative does these type of things is um, like every college has their version of this myth, I, I feel. But at, at Berkeley, there is a big uh, seal in front of the main library. And all of the undergraduate students believe that, or at least there's a story that goes, if you step on the seal of the university, you're going to fail all of your exams. You'll have horrible luck, right? So don't step on the seal, right? And I always would ask my students, say, well, you know, how many of you literally believe that that is true? And out of a class of like maybe 20, you'd get maybe one or two hands. Then you ask the question, okay, how many of you step on the seal? How many of you make a point of avoiding it? You know, all, all hands are, you know, everyone's going to avoid it. So that's mm-hmm. the power of story, right? Like whether or not you believe there to be a dragon up on the actual mountain, right? You know, enough people are telling you a story of the like crazy violent thing that lives up on the mo- mountain or, you know, the werewolves that live in the in the woods and, you know, they come out at night. And you're probably going to avoid the woods at night or avoid going to the top of the mountain, right? I, so, I yeah, no, story is completely invested in that. I remember a bunch of those from being a kid. We had, um, we have like three grades in a row. It must be the way the British uh, pavements are made up, I guess, like access mm-hmm. access plates. Sometimes you get one, sometimes you get two, but if you get three, you never walk across three of them. Um, yeah. And then also like road signs or they're on pavement. If they almost make an archway, you can't walk in between unless you spit after walking through, in which case it nullifies the negative effects of walking through. Completely ridiculous things, but but that I did as a kid that I still find myself doing today out of an automatic reaction is I'll walk across two and then step off the third. I'm like, ooh, can't walk across three. Even though I don't believe that I'm going to get bad luck from it, I just do it. Yeah, but I mean, the, the story, right, is enough to, to ingrain that behavior in you. Um, and, you know, it doesn't even have to be a, a, a social prohibition that, that is necessarily being generated. Um, so uh, there was a theory in, in folklore, this guy Holbeck, he wrote an essay called um, The Interpretation of Fairy Tales. And in it, he talks about, you know, what, why are the re- what are the reasons why there are details in fairy stories that that seem kind of universal and always tend to repeat, right? You know, the young woman who is, you know, uh, sort of put down by her her stepmother or you know guarded by a dragon has to be rescued by a heroic knight, and at the end they're going to get you know married and live happily and ever, ever after, right? Like, why do so many fairy stories follow that structure? And Holbeck kind of suggested that the reason this happens is because people are, are, are trying to work out real world social dynamics by sort of exaggerating the details and placing them in the, at this sort of narrative distance where, you know, the, the dragon or the monster guarding the, the young princess or woman is reflective of, you know, uh, parents prohibiting a, a, a child from, from growing up. Um, that the, the sort of very uncomfortable dynamics of children getting uh, older and parents becoming progressively less socially relevant is, you know, that's an uncomfortable thing. So how do you work that out? Are you going to have that conversation with your mom and dad? 
or is it easier to just put it into a into a story and sort of work through how these things manifest? Um, and I, I think we can see that happening even at the you know even within some of the the Norse material. Um, you know, Sigurd the Dragon Slayer is a great example of that. Um, mm-hmm. Going off and slaying the dragon, climbs up the mountain, finds the sleeping Valkyrie princess, and I mean, Sigurd and Brunhilde don't live happily ever after. But for a moment there, it seems like it might happen. <laughs> I guess right? that's, so- a tr- that's a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the second bit really changes. The second half of that saga really changes in tone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, but I, I, there must be there must have been some lessons to be learned from that as well like i assume what to like the the second portion of uh the volsunga saga yeah yeah yeah, there yeah must, i mean it must have had its social lessons i guess oh yeah no i mean absolutely it's it's it has so many lessons about the the nature of what bonds of kinship look like and what does it mean when you know you live in a society that values honor so mm-hmm. much what what does it mean when someone in your family disgraces your honor right this mm-hmm. is sort of a, a, a socially um you know what should i say this is sort of like a inconceivable dynamic that that a lot of these sort of um germanic legends liked to deal with like um if you're living in a society in which the way in which you go about um achieving justice for someone who has wronged you is all about like being able to use your your family and call on familial connections to exact revenge against an outside group right mm. well what happens when it's your brother or your dad or your sister who is who has wronged you like what mm. do you do especially when there's a social prohibition against like kinslaying like you shouldn't hurt your own family but you can't just let an insult slide. So that's that's totally what Volsunga Saga, the second half of Volsunga Saga, is trying to navigate. And uh, it doesn't end well for anybody. So. I, I, no, it doesn't end well for... I, not a, is there anybody that survives? I mean... I think it turns out... The does, but... <laughs> yeah, it turns out pretty bad for, for everybody. Um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating... It's fascinating. That's a fascinating story. Um, so do you think that it is a case of each different area geographically would have had their own mythological space when it comes to specifically just talking about like the Nordic mythology, their space would look different depending on whether you were in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, obviously later on. Yeah. Versus even geographically, and also time period. You know, you're talking a span of if we just say the Viking Age, you're talking a span of you know a few sure. hundred years. Does it does it adapt and change throughout? Because when you put it back to things like Christianity, as a as just an easy comparison, you kind of get this very clear image of of heaven. And I'm sure everybody's yeah. details within that of what heaven is can be can be different but you get a very clear kind of the pearly gates mm-hmm. uh, is it saint david or whoever's waiting there to welcome you in and it's this kind of very kind of iconic image whereas i wonder if we you know how 
it is in the Viking zone and different depending on where you are. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's probably the case. Like being able to point to specific evidence of that variation, that gets tricky because we have the lack of evidence when it comes to, you know, extended narratives. But there have certainly been um, scholastic theories that are are directly related to this. Um, I think it was... I, I could be mistaken, but I think it was Andy Orchard who was arguing that um, a lot of the details from the very famous uh, epic poem, um, Voluspal, right? The Seeress's Prophecy, where we get a lot of details about the Norse mythological world. Um, he argues that a lot of the details seem very much rooted in the Icelandic uh, landscape, you know, you get these sort of vulcan, this volcanic imagery and smoke and ice and that kind of thing, um, and that's just not the geographical reality of the Scandinavian mainland, like in mm-hmm. Norway and Sweden and Denmark. That's just, you know, yeah, they don't have those things. Um, so yeah, there's there's definitely been research that suggests maybe the the understanding that we have of this space is a specifically Icelandic understanding. Um, but, oh, that that whole idea of even the creation, you know, yeah. this, this land of fire and ice, and and it mixes. It is, you know, anybody who hasn't been to Iceland probably doesn't grasp the extremes yeah. that maybe you get there. And you know, you yeah. do have volcanoes and this this incredibly cold temperature, and mm-hmm. it's like it is almost like another world when you when you first visit. It is. It is. And the and the contention of this theory was especially rooted in there was a massive, I mean, like catastrophic volcanic eruption that happened pretty close to the time period in which Iceland was was being settled. And so, so part of this theory argues that maybe it was the the witnessing of this catastrophic event that informed a lot of the imagery that we that we see um in in mythological stories and it's you know it's not impossible um like just witnessing something like that would certainly inform your your understanding of what a cataclysmic event would look like right you know like maybe we should be interpreting i I don't necessarily i'm not necessarily arguing that this is the case but you know maybe we should be understanding um Cert and his giants, the end of Ragnarok, you know, like lighting fire to the earth, being informed by observing volcanic eruptions. So, yeah, it's it's not the first time it's been suggested. I know my um, my old co-host, his ears will be burning listening mm. to this because Mateus he he loved his volcanoes. So uh. you know, I know he, that's uh, that's a big part of his. Uh, he's wrote. He's got a few. I think he's probably got a few books on like volcanoes and this idea. Uh, so I, 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 I quite like that. But then mm-hmm. it feels that a lot of this mythological world is based on Iceland. Now, obviously, Iceland wasn't was formed quite. It's later um, in terms mm-hmm. of then. So, do we know what? Or do we have any idea what the the mythological space might have looked pre pre that? Because I guess a lot of our sources are coming from a, from Iceland. They're written down from either the Icelandic mm-hmm. sites or from Snorri. Do we have any idea of what this mythological space could have looked like before? Yeah, that? it's it's tough. Like certainly, we don't have any 
extended narratives uh, that explain mythological space like Snorri does. Like we, we don't have an equivalent. Like the closest you're going to get is Saxo Grammaticus. Like, mm-hmm. but he's not really doing the same thing that Snorri is doing. Um, so the sort of the, the evidence that we're left with then um, is sort of mediated by the by the Icelanders. So we have this genre of poetry called skaldic poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, all that skaldic poetry means is poetry composed by skalds or court poets is basically the way that you, you understand that. And these would have been poets employed by kings and, and other aristocrats in mainland Scandinavia. Sometimes they were Icelanders, sometimes they weren't. Um, but they would have been in the in the courts on the mainland. Um, and they composed very rigid poetry that got written down by the Icelanders later. Um, and some of the details that um, they write down or use uh, as imagery in their poetic compositions, we can, you know, uh, compare and contrast with the things that Snorri um, tells us and try to get a, a an image of, you know, either how much Snorri got right, if that's how you want yeah. to view it, or what type of variation existed across time and space. So that's really kind of the evidence we're, we're left with. Um, the tricky bit is like, if you're bringing in archaeological material, right, you, you just have the physical object itself, but you don't necessarily have stories telling you what its significance was or how people interpreted the, the symbolism on it. So we're kind mm-hmm. of left guessing in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which makes it incredibly difficult. Yeah, <laughs> very frustrating. Yeah, I would. Oh, I just, I would just love to know what people believed and how would how. I guess, I guess, how in how deeply they believed in all of this, whether it was just mm. just something in a sense of you just told stories and it was, or whether this was a genuine belief of that's how the world was made and these are the story like kind of kind of you know how we 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 see it today people believe it's like oh it's a creation myth these people believe that this was exactly how the world was created and i and i always wonder like did they or was it just kind of an entertaining story to tell or just to explain a few things away and i would love to know i really i really would i suspect that you know like People are people, no matter you know what time. You know, like, yeah. At the end of the day, we're all human beings attempting to understand our place in the, in, in the universe. Um, and so, I suspect that the dynamic of the medieval world was not all that different necessarily from from the way that we interact with religion today. There are those who, you know, take religious narrative and believe it quite literally, and there are those who believe it's a convenient um you know convenient symbolism to understand the universe and there are other people who outright reject it probably the case in the middle ages as well like i i mean this is maybe a little bit off topic i'm not sure yeah go for it. <laughs> um at what point does there's something because you wouldn't call christian ideology or or muslim or jewish mythology mm-hmm. it's it's as a religion in and of itself and i i i assume those those people 
would find it offensive if you were to call it Christian mythology, um, Jewish mythology, Islamic mythology. That would probably be deemed offensive. So do we know like at what point that kind of changes or where it becomes mythology? Because I guess we are talking about something. Where does religion turn into mythology? Yeah, because this is something that could be classed as a religion. And a lot of people today, particularly, you know, more, again, more and more people that are turning back to paganism who Mm -hmm. don't like the idea of mythology. I know I've had people, when it comes to this podcast, be like, oh, if you want more people to listen, don't call it Nordic mythology. You just upset people. And all sorts of little little mentions like that of like, you know, more and more people get into this. They find that mythology word quite offensive because it's deemed something not real, I guess. Well, that's the thing, right? It's... (laughs) This is the problem, I think, that we we tend to use this word mythology or myth as as you know, it's it's almost an an insult, right? If you say, yeah. oh, you know, like the earth is, you know, the earth is flat. That's just a myth, right? Like it, we use it synonymous synonymously as a a way of saying that something is untrue, right? And that's not really the nature of what the the word mythology means, right? Like really, when we're talking about mythology, what we're talking about is the narratives, the stories that people are talking about. So you could certainly talk about Christian mythology or. Um, Jewish mythology or, you know, et cetera. And then the list goes on. Um, but mythology is just the narrative devoid of practice, right? So it doesn't matter whether or not you're, you know, if you're just telling stories about Thor and Odin going around and doing things, right? You're just engaging in, in mythology. You're just storytelling. What matters is what distinguishes mythology from religion is is practice right like going conducting the rituals associated with those narratives so the two go hand in hand we just happen to use the term myth as a way yeah. of denoting something that's untrue yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah i guess christian myth like stories from the bible they maybe people would argue that there's a lesson to be learned in them but then there's a lesson to be learned in a lot yeah. of stories from, from Nordic mythology as well. Of course. And it's all, you know, it's engaged in a type of imaginative discourse that is all about what do we value and what do we want to reinforce within our narratives? And what do we want to say is, you know, what things do we want to flag is, is things one wants to avoid. Um, so like, you know, when we think about the narratives of, of Norse mythology, what are the things that they value? Okay. Martial prowess, honor, loyalty to, you know, to the kin group and all that. What are the things that are not valued? Okay. Treachery, lying, basically all the things that Loki likes to do, right? Socially disruptive mm-hmm. things. And so these reinforce, you know, the, the, the sort of mythic cognitive metaphors reinforce social values right and that's universally true whether you're talking about medieval scandinavia or you know the 16th century england or pre-columbian america of course the stories we tell are going to reflect our social values Mm -hmm. and those things are going to vary from time to time and place to place do you think that even even with you know the mythology from Scandinavia that it would be 
there is an element of like wanting to not necessarily control people, but like you said, to have that social order, it's to teach people mm-hmm. what's socially acceptable, what's not acceptable, what you can do, what you don't do, and almost not not keep people in check, but to to teach this idea of this is how how we do things. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, to a certain extent, that's exactly what it's engaging in. It is keeping, I mean, when one says like keeping people in line, yeah. the connotations of that are a little bit authoritarian. But, you know, and if you want to live in a functional society, then yeah, you, you've got to impose limitations on behavior, mm-hmm. right? So what are things that that would be socially disruptive? Okay, well, you know, murder is probably bad. We probably shouldn't do that. So, all right, if we tell stories that reinforce that that murder is bad, then cool, you're 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 in the good, you know, you're in the clear. Um, you know, but that's that's tricky because even our understanding today of what murder is is different than the way that medieval Icelanders understood murder to mm. be. Like there's a we understand murder to be like killing somebody outright like if you murder somebody like walking down the street like you can't do that if you get into an argument or someone insults you you can't kill them right that would that would be murder for a medieval icelander that's not the case like yeah there are totally instances where killing is justified but murder for a medieval icelander according to the law codes would be if you killed somebody and then tried to hide it right yeah that's murder that's the bad thing you're not Mm -hmm. allowed to do that Mm -hmm. um so yeah there 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 are all of these social prohibitions but they're not they're not consistent over time and place they they're reflective of the people that lived in a time and and a place um with certain social needs that don't necessarily reflect our own today do we see instances of it being used for it it kind of been abused in a sense of, you know, there's countless examples of Christianity being used and twisted to a king's will and he'll pick and choose what he wants to get across, whatever he wants to get across. Do you think that happened as well in with yeah. like Nordic way where you'll pick, you'll pick and choose the bits you want to pass on to your people because he's going to kind of keep them in like sure. or, to, or to get your narrative across and what you want to do across so you're going to kind of yeah 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 well so let's let's think for a second as a, a um thought experiment about like okay so i mentioned earlier right like the, the norse afterlife right very martial very concerned with with fighting and that kind of thing all right so like why 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 is that what are the historical circumstances that that lead to that and there have been some theories that have been put forward um I think I'm, I might be mis, uh, misremembering his name. I think it's Barnett or something. He's a scholar out of, um, I think it was archaeology at Cambridge. And uh, he basically argued that the, the narratives concerned with Odin and all of this fighting imagery and the afterlife is a place reserved for warriors is the, re- the direct result of the historical dynamics of Scandinavia um, during the the early Middle Ages. And he basically said, you know, at the beginning of the Middle Ages, we've got this big centralized kingdom uh, in Francia ruled by Charlemagne, right? Big, powerful guy, powerful king with lots of armies. And Charlemagne does something during his rule. He invades Saxony. 
and he kills a, and, and and beheads and it's a very horrible uh, situation he beheads all of these heathen saxons who refuse to convert and the theory goes that well the next door neighbors of the saxons are the danes and the danes are a bunch of sort of independent chieftains you know all kind of squabbling with one another and they look over at saxony and what is now modern day germany and they go oh my god like that's a problem like we we don't want to get steamrolled like those guys did we need to we need to centralize our authority man like we need we need standing armies we need a king who can organize all of that and so denmark very quickly begins to to centralize and socially put a big emphasis on having a king the king having retainers and martial prowess being a very important um aspect of society well the next door neighbors of the Danes and they're the longtime rivals, right, of the Norwegians. So the Norwegians see the Danes doing this and go, oh my God, well, we can't compete with that. We need to centralize and start having armies of our own. So they start doing that. And then Sweden sees the Norwegians doing it and go, oh my God. And so they repeat the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of this theory, and here's the, here's the really trippy bit. Um, so part of this theory says, if there was such a social um, desire and need for boys specifically, right? If like if the thing that was going to distinguish you and give you um, social status was like having sons who were you know warriors of the king, then you're probably not going to invest all that much in raising uh, baby girls because it, it doesn't serve you as well. You have less sort of access to moving up the social ladder, and so the argument goes that. Uh, female infanticide uh, rates went up in Scandinavia that like exposing baby girls so that one didn't have to expend the resources to raise them that that started becoming a thing much like the one child policy in in China Mm -hmm. right very similar dynamic well this goes on and then by around the 780s 790s there's a there's a problem much like China experienced as a result of the one child policy, which was there were a lot more eligible young men than young women. So all of a sudden there's a gender imbalance and all of these young men want to get hitched and start having a family, but there aren't, there aren't enough women to go and get married. So what do you do? Okay. Well, you need to distinguish yourself. You need somehow to be the more eligible bachelor so that, you know, Sven can go marry Ilva down the road. Mm -hmm. What do you do? All right. I need quick cash in order to get Ilva to notice me. I'm going to jump in a boat with a couple of my buddies. We're going to go across to this Island over here called England. I hear that there are a bunch of monks over there with gold that are undefended. Why don't we just go and take their stuff and bring it back? And then we've got quick movable wealth. And the argument goes that that gender imbalance is the reason we get the beginning of the Viking age, right? The reason people start going a Viking is so they can, you know, it's these young men who just want to go get married and they need quick cash. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) men have done stupider things. Yeah. But I mean, like it's a, it's a trippy theory. I mean, it's not, um, you know, there are some there are some uh, scholars who accept that theory, and there are others who who reject it. But I, I quite like the the, yeah. the various facets of how you can draw this historical continuum right through, and and it's in line with why do the myths reflect this high concern with with martial prowess? Okay, well, it makes sense if you know, like the defense of your country necessitates lots of warriors and a centralized king. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, all that tracks. 
Yeah, and the thing, my personal opinion is that the truth is probably just a combination of all the different theories oh, put sure. together. And it's like everyone, you know, you get people who focus on one single theory and push it. And it, and you know, like you say, some people accept it, some people don't. When it's probably just a case of it's all this big melting pot of different things going on at a different time. And it's just kind of, I guess, what happens. There doesn't have mm-hmm. to be a singular spark that, that kind of triggers something like particularly like a, you know the viking age yeah no i think i think that's exactly the right mentality to have and you know it's a line that i use with my students all the time that it's probably not an issue of either or it's a case of both and right yeah and i think that's i think that's probably true of most of human history mm-hmm. right absolutely i think that's the the problem a lot of people suffer with probably i'm close into this they're like you know i have a i have a business in this space i we have the podcast in the space mm-hmm. so obviously i see a lot of stuff related to this but i'm sure people who are big fans of greek mythology roman mythology all those all experience the same thing of the everybody wants things put in neat little boxes mm-hmm. particularly nowadays nobody wants to not nobody wants to think but a lot of people they just want to know the answer because maybe maybe it's Google that's done it. You know, you want to be able to <laughs> Google the answer. You want the the top little paragraph that pops up to tell you exactly what's true, and that's be it. You can forget mm-hmm. about it. So you want to be able to Google something from Nordic mythology, like what were Odin's wolves called, um, and then Damn. they just Google it and go, okay, Gary and Fricky, and they don't. Not the whole discussion of whether they even existed at all, and the whole kind of thing mm-hmm. behind it. People just want this these quick little answers. But also people then want to go and tell everybody else those answers, which I think we got with social media and Facebook, where people read that top little answer and go, mm-hmm. okay, now I'm going to tell every single person this. And if they don't agree with it, then they're wrong. Yeah. We've just got in this kind of cycle of um, smart, little smart asses, I guess. But like, hey, that's the that's the benefit of programs like this and a lot of other sort of public facing um, academic resources that say, hey, the, the narrative really is more nuanced than you think. And here's a diverse array of perspectives to, to talk about that. So, you know, in, in, in that sense, this is the, this podcast is a great resource for that. Um, you know, it's a it's an issue that I encounter with my students all the time whenever we're doing Norse mythology, because like you say people just want to like google something and get a quick answer and they they don't want to necessarily have to consider oh well you know there there are various versions of a source that have differing information like that's that's complicated that requires synthesis and like taking a side on on what one thinks and that's a tricky thing to do to to go out and listen to a diversity of, of opinions, synthesize that and formulate your own. It's much easier to just be told, all right, X person said Y to me, and that will always be the case. I guess it's easier to remember as well. You just have to remember, this is the answer. I remember this and I can just move on rather than I have to really sit down and think about this and form my own opinions. That could Mm -hmm. also be wrong. You know, it takes a, a certain self of certain sense of like self reflection to be like, Oh, I'm going to form my own opinion, but this could not be right. 
and I'm going to spend the next probably like a lot of scholars like I'm going to next spend the next thirty years researching yeah. this, and you know, in thirty five years, somebody could come along and they find something in the ground that completely disproves but my life's work. That's the thing, though. Like you, it, it you have to be humble doing this kind of thing. Like scholarship from a hundred years ago, like no one is is citing it. Very most of it we've moved on from, or we've nuanced. Like the the goal of scholarship and having a, a conversation, even like the one we're having, is is you know in pursuit of finding the right answer, but knowing we're probably wrong. The, the idea is to just keep kicking the ball further down the road towards that nebulous, you know, like, or I guess I should say that, that idyllic sense of the right answer. The time machine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> until so we get the maybe time maybe we'll get there. Yeah. Until we get the time machine and you're able to go back and tell us what we all got wrong. And, <laughs> oh, you know, I, honestly, I, I, I hope it happens. I would love to know. <laughs> I, I would. And I imagine it's, we've got a lot wrong. That's, that's my, Oh, I'm sure if I'm putting a flag anywhere, I am putting it in the core of the, we've got so much wrong, not just mm -hmm. about this, about all of human history. I yeah. bet there's so many things where we found a small artifact and we've held it into such high regard mm -hmm. and reality was just a little, nothing. It was just like a little side piece that was made mm -hmm. of uh, something insignificant. That, that's the nature of the human condition, I suppose. I mean, it, it, think about all of the uh, literature that we are, I guess, uh, textual evidence we have from, you know, times and places we would consider extremely ancient, you know, ancient Babylon or ancient Greece, where you have scholars at, at that time, thousands of years ago, writing about, oh my God, like we really know nothing. Like we don't have any sources. And oh man, like if only we had access to the smart guys who lived 100, 200, you know, a thousand years before we did. I mean, like, yeah. I, I think it's indicative of just, that's what it means to be human is constantly thinking about the past and wondering where you fit in to this weird, you know, uh, time continuum. So mm -hmm. You know, we can, all we can do is our best, uh, our best shot at it. So, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, oh yeah, let's let's wrap this up and let people ask you some some questions. Fantastic, uh, Liam. Is there anything you want to plug? I don't know if you have like a public face, whether it's like an Instagram or like books or research, whatever you want to put out. Sure, there. yeah, I can do a quick plug. Um, so yeah, uh, anybody who is interested in uh, my research or any of the things that we've discussed today, you can find me on, I guess, what was formerly Twitter, now X, at uh, Liam Nobody H says X. Yeah, I mean, nobody says <laughs> I don't think, I think you're the first the social media formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, you can find me at that site uh, on, as uh, Liam H2OS. Uh, and for anybody interested in um, scholarship articles about um, fantastic mythological objects and things, I have an article out in the uh, journal Viking and Medieval Studies volume 18 uh that you're that everyone is welcome to to check out uh, more more discussions sort of tangentially related to what we've been talking today but yeah those are probably the two things to plug perfect wonderful um i guess as always if you want to follow me directly it's daniel and and one the business at horns of odin or yeah and as i said at the top of the show patreon forward slash nordic mythology 
podcast. If you can help support us, it's just three pound a month. It really does help us. It really does help keep us going. I know I say it every week, and but it genuinely does help us keep the podcast alive. I guess, um, and if not, just follow us at Nordic Mythology Podcast on all the different platforms. And again, leave us a five star five star rating and a positive review wherever you listen because it seems insignificant and inconsequential, but it does help the algorithms bump us up and I guess other people find the podcast who aren't aware of it. So we would much appreciate it if you can do that. And um, yeah, let's let's jump over and, and do some questions. <laughs> 